Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The debate between Apple and the federal government is on the surface about security, privacy, and encryption. However, in a larger sense, it's about the balance between our liberty and right to privacy versus what some perceive as the greater good of the nation. When we put up with the indignities of the TSA, we're agreeing that the greater good of security checkmates certain individual liberties. When we pass laws about personal vices, about speed limits, or about guns or fundamental civil rights, the framework is the same. In fact, when we look at the history of America right on through our present-day polarization, we see this struggle between individual liberty and the common good as the fundamental debate that links us directly with our founders. This is the tension that my guest Colin Woodard writes about in his new book, American Character. Colin Woodard is an award-winning writer and journalist. He's currently the state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press-Herald and the Maine Sunday Telegram. He's a contributing editor at Politico, and he was a longtime foreign correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. His work has appeared in dozens of publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his newest work, American Character, the history of the epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good. Colin Woodard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about how the founders dealt with this issue and a little bit about how that tension, that discussion, was really very much a part of what the founders debated in the creation of this experiment. It was, and they were debating it because the founders were deeply divided on geographic grounds on this and many other issues. Because uh, my previous book, that this sort of builds off American nations, tried to identify why it is that we've had these geographical divides through our history, and it posits that we've never had one America, but rather several Americas, and that these are separate regional cultures where a federation of a of, of a bunch of disparate nations, essentially, and that each of these has its origins in the different distinct clusters of colonies on the eastern and southern rims of the country in the colonial period. And the differences between those colonies were profound. They, had, they were ethnographically and religiously and ideologically distinct, settled by distinct groups of people, and each had a very different idea of the America they were building and had their own fundamental ideals and expectations. Fast forward to the revolutionary period, and they were all facing an external threat from Britain and found themselves in an unexpected alliance, a military alliance, and the Continental Army in order to fight off that threat, a, uh, a loose European Union-like uh, confederation. And they, they suddenly had to figure out a way to create a lasting union between them, a federation. And that's what the debates in the Constitutional Convention were about. They were an enormous debate that fell along the lines of you know, individual liberty versus the common good and how you think about those things with each of the representatives of the different regional cultures having a very different take on what should happen. And the result 
is this incredibly complex and peculiar compromise to satisfy everybody. And that's why our Constitution is unusual as it is. And it's interesting that what really brings this into bold relief is, is kind of the opposite of this. Those moments when we have come together as a more unified nation, and it has always been, as you allude to with the revolution, when there has been an external threat in more contemporary times, whether it was World War II or the Great Depression or the threat of communism during the Cold War, only when there's been a real powerful external threat has it really allowed all of these forces to come together. Precisely. Those are the times, the, the few times where you have um, you know, unity across all of these regional cultures is when you have an external threat or a profound existential crisis. But um, at other times, we've almost always been at odds. And what has allowed our country to move forward and our federal uh, government's mechanisms to operate has been for decade-long stretches, there's been a a successful coalition around some idea or platform that has that has come into being, it's had enough oomph, enough um, support from these different regions to control the levers of federal power in Washington. You know, you need a, these days, you need a filibuster-proof Senate majority, you need the White House, and you need uh, the House to really move things forward. In the past, this wasn't one party doing it. They were often coalitions between, you know, one faction of one party and one faction of another that would have this lasting uh, effect. Well, we're not in one of those periods. We're in a period when neither of the current political formations, the, the current Democrat and Republican parties, which are two regional coalitions, one gathered or gathered more or less in the northern tier and the uh, and the the, the the coastal part of uh, the Pacific Coast from San Francisco north up to Juneau, Alaska, against a largely Dixie-dominated Republican one, including a lot of the interior West. But if you do the math on the the regions that they have support consistently in, that that their platform resonates with the fundamental political heritage and values of those regions, neither one has a lock. Neither of them has enough to govern on their own. And so for you know more than a decade now, close to two decades, they've both been fighting to try to win the allegiance of very skeptical swing regions of the country that aren't sold on either platform. And it's led us to be in a situation where the pendulum is swinging madly from one side to the other. You know, after the, <laughs> after the midterms under uh, George W. Bush's election, it's like, oh, the Republicans are going to be vanquished. 2008, look, they are vanquished. You know, there'll never be a national party again. And then, you know, suddenly two years later, you have the rise of the Tea Party, and it looks like the Democrats are on the rope, and they'll be vanquished for dinner. I mean, it shifts back and forth because we're sort of on a knife's edge uh, with neither grouping having the, the, the power to really govern. And because they're so polarized and there's not a lot of basis for compromise, we're in the situation where governing is essentially not happening at all, which is um, not a good place for uh, the world's only superpower to be in. And one of the things that makes it particularly interesting today, looking at it through the lens of history, as you do in American character, is that when all of this was kind of set in place by the founders and in the intervening years and the intervening battles, you had a nation that was not nearly as mobile as it is today. It was more fixed in place. Today you have people and, and a much greater free flow of people between different parts of the country, particularly people moving to cities, greater urbanization today, to see the impact that that's having on this balance and this tension that you talk about. 
Yeah, and you would also think, you know, I, I laid out the idea that there are these separate nations, essentially, within the United States, these separate regional cultures that date back centuries, that each settled their own exclusive strips of the country and laid down the assumptions and sort of cultural DNA, the institutions and and ideals around each of these places. But um, the, the, the striking thing about it is that... Um, you would think that today with mass retailing and the internet and, you know, mass culture and pop music and, you know, cable television that, and people moving around, like you say, that the differences between these places would be rapidly eroding. Mm -hmm. And yet by almost any metric you look at, any polling data and attitudes about whatever you'd like about church attendance or the role of church and state or gun control or uh, an election, the, all the data is showing a, increasing polarization exactly on these fault lines I identify in the book over and over again. So the question at hand is, why is it? Why are we not becoming more homogenous? And what a lot of social scientists have been doing for the past 10 years, there's a lot of research that's come out looking at the people who are moving around. And here's essentially what is being discovered is that, you know, in any one of these, you know, in the bluest of blue counties and the reddest of red counties, you have the full set of political opinions you know, represented by individuals. But some of those individuals are going to feel like, oh, you know, the, the way I see the world and the, what freedom means and the, and the goals we should have as Americans, you know, the people around here all agree with me. I feel the wind that we're back and, you know, I feel very comfortable here. Other people are going to say, why don't these people get it? I can't believe that people have this attitude. You know, it's unexamined assumptions. It drives me crazy. Those people, when they move, tend to vote with their feet with, to the degree that they have uh, uh, any, um, you know, uh, say in where they go, they try to move among like-minded people. And this has been going on for 30 years, especially, especially as the movement has increased, people have started self-sorting to be in places where people are more like them and agree with them. And as they do that, they are self-sorting and increasing the homogenization of attitudes within these nations and uh, it, it being a major countervailing force against the homogenization forces you would otherwise expect. And here's one more thing. There's also more social science research in the past couple of years coming out where they're discovering that statistically as they look at people who move to a new area, that they start actually assimilating and taking on some of the political assumptions of the place they've arrived in, which, if true, um, would only further the uh, explanation as to why things are hardening with movement when you would, on the face of it, expect it to be causing things to become more uh, shades of gray or, and, and more homogenous. I wonder, though, if that will start to break down along generational lines as we see more and more young people beginning to fill in in these areas, and we see the millennials taking more and more political and social and cultural power across the country. That will be interesting to see. I mean, I would be curious, and I haven't seen anything, any data to look at, but an interesting and poignant research question for somebody out there would be, you know, are the millennial phenomenon where, you know, millennials are said to want to, uh, you know, to want to live in urban areas mm -hmm. and places that are walkable and not have to own cars and, 
and uh, and have more of a uh, community-minded and urban bias as a generation, and are moving into center cities and causing the revival of places from you know Des Moines to Cleveland and all over the country. You're having downtowns revived from the demand of the millennials to do that, and companies and corporations in order to recruit having to invest in the downtowns of the cities where they're based to create the cultural amenities and institutions and stuff that will attract the people they need to man their businesses. And that's a really interesting thing. Here's the research question. Is there a difference in the way millennial and the degree that that's true with millennials on regional grounds? In other words, is this really happening in, say, Atlanta and Houston in the same way that it's happening in Des Moines or Cleveland? I would suspect that maybe it's not, but I have no data to work with. That would be the first thing I would jump to is, is the millennial experience that we're talking about, is there... Are there strong regional differences in how that's being applied? Well, the American nation's paradigm would suggest would, would predict that there will be, although I don't have the, the data and I don't think anybody has looked at it yet to, to actually say whether this supposition is true or not. One of the points you make, though, is that on the surface, the homogenization probably should have happened already. And you have to ask yourself, as, as you pointed out, why that kind of effect hasn't happened yet. And and when you look at it, the millennials may be the fulcrum, may be the tipping point to create that kind of homogenized America, particularly because they best understand and best use the tools of, of mass communication and ideas of globalization and free flow of money and ideas and people across borders, and that that comes to them differently and in a more native way than it has previous generations where it's been tacked on. And that may be the key to create that homogenized tipping point. That may be the case, but that requires that they be somewhat evenly distributed around the country in this phenomenon, because if indeed the millennials vote with their feet the way the population at large has been shown to, then millennials with the attitudes they have, the priorities that they're placing on having, you know, walkable urban areas with, you know, bike paths and, and uh, rich cultural amenities and rejecting the suburbs and wanting to live in diverse places, I mean, those are going to lead them um, in, in the criteria they're seeking, we'll sort them into specific nations on the map again, where you could be increasing the divide between the same way you've sort of seen worldwide where you have, you know, enclaves within the global society that are globalized hotspots where people are jumping to and fro and know each other. And then you have the world's flyover country where none of that is happening. So that's the other possibility. So you could be right, but it could also play out in such a way that actually starts creating a great divide between the millennial transformed, you know, you know, social media, internet, and digitized generation being concentrated in certain parts of the country and not present in others and only increasing the divide. So I'm, I, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case, but those are the two hypotheses or the two possibilities that we'd have to observe and test out. And I myself at least don't, I don't know of anybody who's looked at it, but it's a really interesting question you raise and, and one I find kind of intriguing. And, you know, I think we'll Know, stick under my hat and you know, keep my <laughs> antenna up to see if I see anything on. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, you know, this this kind of urbanization and this change in urbanization is is the kind of thing people like Richard Florida and others have looked at in terms of of the world that these millennials are creating. And as you point out, it's not just in the urban areas you would expect. It's not just in New York or Washington or San Francisco, 
but it's in Detroit and and it's in Cleveland and it's and it's in Austin. I mean, it is dispersing around the country and creating powerful density in these urban areas of of these more millennial views that we're seeing. It is, however, if you look at the, and it's true that it's moving out into the the provinces, so to speak, away from the the D.C.s and L.A.s and San Francisco's of the world, and that's a good thing, but the cities that it's moving to, the Detroit's and Cleveland's and Des Moines, like you say, almost all those cities people point to are within certain nations. You know, Des Moines and Detroit and Cleveland are all within either the the New England formatted and originally settled zone I call Yankeedom that extended you know, New Englanders or their descendants settled this upper tier that included the Western Reserve of Ohio, which is where Cleveland is, which was claimed by Connecticut and settled almost entirely by Connecticut settlers in a, in a compromised settlement when the Ohio Territory was created. Will it be part of Connecticut because Connecticut claims it or, or not? And basically, it was, it was sovereignty was given to Ohio, but Connecticut was given land title, so it's a, a New England colony at the beginning. And then people from the Western Reserve and the Yankee settled upstate of New York were the original settlers into Michigan, where Detroit is, and Wisconsin, and many of the places that people point to as the new wow hotbeds of this happen to be in that zone or the next one down, a, a Midland zone, which is a, a ethnic mosaic. It was founded originally by the, the Quakers' experiments, William Penn's experiments in Delaware Bay. They, you know, Quakers believed in a an inner light that humans were inherently good. They had a fairly open immigration policy. You had people come from all over the world at a time when other colonies did not admit people, you know, from other countries and language groups, and they settled. They were allowed to settle and retain their institutions. So you have this this community-minded, 19th-century, ethnographically diverse chessboard where nobody in particular is supposed to be in charge. It's oriented around the community and has always been neighborly and had those those community values, that's where you find, you know, Des Moines or even Omaha transforming. In fact, you know, as you go around the country, and I happen with my, my, I'm a contributing editor, like you mentioned, political, I'm working on a series of extensive articles traveling around the country looking at urban innovations, including the stuff you're talking about. And as I'm researching it, you know, a lot of these are concentrated in certain regions and not as common in others. So while they are second, what people you know, derisively call second and third tier cities, they're also concentrated in certain regional cultures in a way that American nations would predict and you know, may run against the, that homogenizing force you're describing. Or maybe not. You know, maybe, they're, maybe you know, the Atlantas and, uh, and Savannas and Mobiles also will start seeing this, but that's not been you know, the examples that people have looked to so far and highlighted. It's interesting that, that what we're seeing today as, as kind of the movement and, and this apparent, you know, what, what people talk about is this rise of, of popularism, the impact that it's having with respect to Trump and, and, and even Bernie Sanders to some extent. And, and, and everybody's talk about a movement happening among those people. I would argue that that movement represents not the beginning of something, but the end of something, that, that it represents the last gasp of, of that culture in the country and that it's being replaced by this millennial culture. And that's part of what, what's generating the anger. The anger comes from this sense of it being the last gasp. And instead of looking at it as the beginning, I think we best look at it as the end of something and begin to understand it that way. And in that way, it relates to, to exactly what we're talking about. 
And you mean in generational terms, sort of the last gasp of in, the in gen- gen- generation genera- generational yeah. terms, which has the overlay of the cultural terms as well. Right. That's my poor Gen Xers like ourselves are always squeezed between those two bigger generations and <laughs> lost in the discussion. Right. But it's our lot in life. <laughs> the baby bust. Um, I mean, I think that that's true in a certain way. I mean, certainly. Bernie, the, the distinction between Trump supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters, they have a lot of overlap. So in the, in the, if you're looking at, at the American experience that the primary spectrum to look at, the axes are individualism and, you know, collectivism at the end. You'll say libertarian, uh, radical libertarianism on one end, radical collectivism on the other. If you're looking at, at politicians in that spectrum, um, you know, Bernie Sanders is a social democrat. That's more on the you know common good collectivist side than you usually see in a competitive party nominee in the United States because most of our regional cultures are much more individualistic than those in Europe. And any time our government has tried to extend into social democratic realms of becoming more than a um, guarantor of fairness and trying to be more of an engineering participant in improving society, you know, that's accepted and works successfully in many West European countries. But here, the historical record is that that gets beaten back politically, you know, does not have broad support over and over. So to have a a avowed social democrat be competitive in a national primary election is something rather remarkable, particularly when many of the supporters are young people. You know, I think part of that is the the Cold War era um, discrediting, lumping together of social democracy mm-hmm. and communism, you know, which was a rhetorical device used on the right to sort of try to counter the New Deal and the Lyndon and Johnson's Great Society, that that the young generation doesn't remember that, right? To them, there's no coding that links somebody saying they're a socialist with the, you know, the, the, the nuclear Armageddon and the struggle against right. Stalin. Indeed, the Republicans have kind of done a rhetorical disservice to themselves by trying to label Barack Obama as a socialist. You know, Barack Obama is sort of a Teddy Roosevelt, you know, rep- progressive Republican, you know, a, a progressive right. Republican of a century ago. And if you've educated the young generation to think that's socialist, most of them will say, you know, oh, that doesn't seem so bad. So that's made a whole new space in that generation. I think they may be, you know, um, willing to consider things more to the common good side than previous generations were. However, go back to the Trump side of things. And the reason that Trump, I think one of the explanations for his unexpected um, success in the Republican electorate, where it looks like he's going to be the nominee, is because on individualism, collectivism terms of the Republican candidates, he is far and away the closest to the center, the, the, the furthest from the libertarian extreme of the candidates. All his competitors you know, basically have the same laissez-faire economic policy that says that if you have less taxes and less regulation and less government and less social programs, there will axiomatically be more freedom. Trump's not saying that. He's going against uh, classic Republican economic orthodoxy in being opposed to free trade, in being opposed to open immigration that gives you a supply of low-wage labor, in championing the causes of you know, lower middle class people, particularly the white, you know, manufacturing workers who took the blow in, 
you know, many, many of our Rust Belt cities from globalization. He's championing them. No, no political party has championed that large block of people who were the shock troops of the New Deal. No one's championed them in economic terms in, you know, 40 years. And that's the giant pool of warm water that's fueling Donald Trump's hurricane. The scary thing, and they're, they're, they tend to be, you know, they're not young the way that the Sanders voters are, but there are a lot of them. And I don't think they're just baby boomers. If they're not old like the Tea Party people are old, from what I can tell from statistics, you know, they're not slanted to being, you know, getting close to retirement. It's a, it's a more active part of the electorate. The disturbing thing with Trump, though, because, you know, American character is also exploring how right. do you achieve and maintain a liberal democracy, really? How do you balance individual liberty and the common good to, to genuinely maximize the, you know, the sustenance of a free society, which is kind of what America is about. And Trump there, that's where it gets scary because he's not tr- speaking to the Americans at large. He's speaking to a subset, you know, the, the good people, the Volk, and that other Americans, be they Muslim Americans or Mexicans or journalists or somebody who made fun of him on Twitter, um, are you know the dangerous other who must be suppressed and denied civil liberties and constitutional and legal protections? That's a very different thing in American politics and sort of a his means that he's promising being undemocratic and authoritarian and the fact that that has the endorsement of large numbers of people. That's the disturbing part of the Trump phenomenon. Whereas the the Trump support is actually has some interesting overlap with Bernie Sanders, who's definitely working within the. You know, you know, legal and constitutional structures and, uh, and norms of, uh, of a liberal democracy. But one of the things that, that is going to emerge from this, certainly in, in some fashion in, in the discussion, is how we define the common good today, how we define those common values in a world that is globalized, that, that mass communication exists connecting us on a 24-7 basis, that, that really has, has changed the underpinnings of what that common good represents in the 21st century. And I don't think we've come close to defining that yet. I mean, the pace of technological change and the shrinking of the world Mm -hmm. has been so rapid. I don't think anybody has had time to process it. And even those who think about it, it moves so fast. It, It is hard on a global scale to grasp what it all means for us, you know, as a species and as humanity. But in terms of understanding where where Americans are at, what they would, what they truly would want and support, in terms of a, you know, a, an agenda that would successfully, you know, maximize a liberal democratic enterprise of trying to ensure a society where there's near universal individual freedom, and to do that, you have, you know, maintaining a context. You know, for you know, 10,000 years, we've had civilizations that were despotisms. The idea that individuals would, might aspire to be free and have liberty was never on the agenda, even as a thought, until just a few hundred years ago. We've been experimenting with it since, and the creation of the, even the flawed aspiration or ideal of that has been something that's taken humans thousands of years to create, and it requires balancing individuals' you know, liberty right now with the um, freedom of the community and the sustenance and maintenance of the structures that allow mass human freedom to exist. And you have to invest in the social and physical infrastructure so that people are, have the opportunity and the condition and sufficient you know, 
um, power and context to be able to hope to have a, a chance in the, you know, to have a free and fair fight in that, you know, competitive, uh, you know, American, uh, you know, struggle out there. <laughs> right. And so you have to have both or you end up losing, you know, individual, if everyone, if, if there's no, you know, referee and, and government isn't strong enough to ensure fair market competition and to ensure that the newly born from less privileged backgrounds have some shot at being able to realize their potential too. If you don't have those things, then pretty soon you start sliding into a context where only a few people will have freedom and there'll be less and less of it for everyone else. So it's a balance point. And I think that's unfortunately often lost in American political rhetoric, the understanding of why providing for the common good is more freedom. You know, there's a, there's a, it's not true that, it's true in certain contexts that less government and less taxes will bring you more freedom if you're in a place with very, very, very high and oppressive taxes and a despotic government. But there's a tipping point beyond which you go where the returns get less and less and pretty soon you're losing freedom. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a balance point in equilibrium and trying to bring that forward to people I think is really important to understanding and, and having a grasp on how we continue this American experiment successfully. Colin Woodard, his book is American Character, a history of the epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good. Colin, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you.